This is a production of Cornell University. Sure. Uh, thanks, everybody. The 20th episode of the Cornell Turf Show we're going to go through here today. Thanks, everybody, for sticking with us during the spring. Great feedback. Um, so we appreciate everybody attending live, watching after the fact, or listening. Uh, today's guest, Dr. Rocka Swa, University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Uh, Rock's here today. We're going to talk about some aeration. Uh, it may get controversial. We don't know. We'll see. Um, but it's it's we've been itching to have this conversation for a couple weeks now, weeks now. So we're glad to get Rock on the show here. Um, but as always, Frank, uh, we'll, we'll transition to you uh, with your news and notes from the past week. All right. Thanks, Carl. So good to have everybody here. And and you know Jeff Stone and the guys at uh, at the Ocean Course at Kiwa Island. Big shout out to the second major of the year, the crew. You know, it's always. Uh, Great. And I noticed the, you know, the great sky that you get down there in the low country. I believe this is the low country. And then um, one of my favorite golf courses in the world is this Mackenzie little gem in Adelaide, Australia, that this picture showed up on Twitter, not only with a beautiful sky, but, you know, among my most favorite things to do other than yak with my esteemed colleague from Nebraska is to ride trains. And there's a train that goes right through the heart of this golf course. And it's a very unique experience for the person spraying uh, on the left there, uh, enjoying a train going by. Um, you know, lots of, lots of stuff in the social media world. I, I spend and have had to spend my time on a new account in Twitter because I got hacked and I started selling sunglasses for a short period of time. But I always marvel at how superintendents just notice little things. And even the crew members, you know, talking about how you know, the simple task of raking a bunker can, you know, bring a lot of well-being and, you know, uh, as my pal Paul McCormick would say, some peacefulness or mindfulness in, in doing these tasks. And I think that gets lost a lot of times in the hustle bustle. And of course, you can't, Carl, it's our last show, right? So I got to show the cute dog pictures, right? Um, and then all the stupid stuff, this Isaac Brewer, this was a great one. The Twitter picture cropped it. He goes, new water feature on 14. So I'm looking at this thing, Carl, and I'm saying, oh, there's these rocks. So it's probably a riprap picture or something. And then you scan back, and there's this poor guy trying to fix a leak uh, uh, on the side of the fairway. And for those of you that just can't get enough of looking at my face, Carl face, uh, our voices, uh, we've got the YouTube channel that's, you know, we've got to be setting records, Carl, for throwing all kinds of baloney out there from the land grant institution here in New York, as well as a podcast, right? We, we take this and, and put it in another format for those of people who just like to listen to it in their head. Now, Carl, uh, as I pass it back to you, just a reminder to everybody, we're going to be back with some webinars over the next uh, couple of months. I know it seems weird to be doing it during the summer, but we're going to try to get some content on screen with our colleague, uh, Rick Slattery. Uh, who's working with us on this program in partnership with the Rochester Institute of Technology, the Galisano in, uh, Sustainability Institute. And Carl, um, you know, the sustainability website is up there now. People can sign up and get the emails. And of course, everybody knows wants a poster, Carl. We want people to start sending pictures of their face like this with the poster to the show. Let's, let's get an email account and see if we can get uh, somebody to outdo you with, with that grin on your face. So Carl, what's the tip for, what's the tip for the week? Yeah. So we've been doing this now for, for 11 weeks, Frank, and, and each week we've been taking one of these, you know, aspects of the poster, one of these BMPs kind of blowing them out and looking at them. Uh, but today in, in kind of a prelude to the talk we'll have with Rock, I wanted to talk about one of the concepts that kind of flows through the whole poster, which is 
uh, determining why you do everything. We use all these tools, you know, for example, in the irrigation system. Why do we irrigate? Well, we use a soil moisture meter. We can look, use our eyes, look for wilt. We can use ET data. All this drives why we irrigate. Same thing with fertilizer, right? If we're trying to grow the grass, we should kind of know how much the grass is growing. That goes back to clipping volume, visually assessing the turf, how much it's growing. Uh, and then pest control too. So why do we control pests? Well, presumably we're scouting to see if the pest is there. Uh, we're using maybe some risk models, dollar spy, Thracnos, brown patch models we got on our website. So we're using all these things to determine why we're gonna do something. Uh, and today, while we don't have anything like this on the poster, we're gonna talk about aeration. Rock, you had a great tweet the other day, uh, informed decisions versus that's what we've always done. And knowing, <laughs> knowing why you're gonna do something uh, is important and you should be able to explain why. When we talk about aeration, there's a bunch of things listed here. I could have listed a bunch more, but you know, why are you doing it? And it's important to think about that before, before you go and do it and say, oh, well, it lists, these are the eight things that it does for me. Well, you know, what, what are you really trying to do? So knowing why, we'll get into this later, Frank, but um, being able to explain why sometimes through data, having some metrics uh, is, is what you should be doing before you do any practice. Yeah, and I think that's just good best management practice no matter what you're doing, whether it's for water quality protection or managing organic matter. Thanks for that, Carl. So let's take a little uh, trip through the weather. Uh, I am fortunately, I'm out in the West Coast this week, so I unfortunately didn't set my alarm. I missed my conference call this morning where Art usually gives me a good weather report. So I'm going to see what kind of meteorologist I can be on the fly. And so the first thing I'd start with, because I'm, you know, growing grass too back east, is uh, the last month has felt fairly uh, wet, but the last week, uh, especially for many, has felt a little bit on the dry side. Um, we're not getting the amount of rainfall we've been getting. Uh, looks like warm temperatures are coming for the next eight to 14 days. Looks like it's likely to be dry or at least normal for some in the next uh, five days and normal uh, precip or maybe even above normal on the longer look but maybe there's not a lot of confidence in these things, right? That's, that's, the, that's the trick to forecasting. One of the things that I just want to draw your attention to, because we won't see you now or talk to you now for a while as you go off to grow grass for the season, um, you know, the dollar spot forecast uh, model we use on the website is still a good tool to add to your toolbox of thinking about how you're going to make those fairway sprays, right? Those large acreage sprays for this particular thing. The better you can predict and model, you know, a day here, a day here, a day here, a day there, uh, changing the interval a little bit, uh, altering the rate, um, all those practices, you can look at them in an immediate and acute level in the model. And also uh, Art and the guys at the Climate Center have built these other uh, forecasts where you can see what's happened in the past and the, and the, and the path moving forward. So uh, I'd encourage you to add this to the links on your phone. Uh, as well as any other tools, there's lots of them out there. Certainly, Greenkeeper and and um, play playbooks have put in the dollar spot risk model. So, so we're talking soil today. And again, you know, I think we were in a stall, and I think the rubber band is about to let go. We're going to accelerate out of this stall now and really start to get in earnest into the growing season. And you can see the response in the soil temperatures uh, recently, now well into the 60s, particularly in the Metro New York area around the urban center somewhere in upstate New York, uh, a little cooler in the higher elevations, but still well into the 50s where these roots are cranking and grass should be growing well. Now, typically, you know, uh, we try to remind everybody because a lot of times in the spring, this is when you make these drench applications for these 
root pathogens that are certainly among the toughest things to control uh, that we have out there. And we talk about it ad nauseum out here uh, on the show. And I'll just remind everybody, you know, check this publication. You can go to the Wisconsin website. Carl, put the Wisconsin website thing in the chat or make sure we put it up there so people can go and access this publication online, uh, check out the efficacy data. You know, it's from 2020. They do it every couple of years. But this addition on the right here of all these mixes, right? This is what took a little extra time because the pathologists uh, really spent some time looking at all the new mixes have come out, right? A lot of companies coming out with mixes. There's not a lot of new molecules. There's some. So what they're doing is they're doing these blendings and then the generic companies are doing the blendings that are unique to them. They're mixing active ingredients in there. And again, with the wide range of efficacy among these products, you know, number one, use them right. Number two, pay attention to the frat code. Well, you know, the last thing we need is getting involved in uh, uh, resistance management of these things. In addition to the fact that we can't get the darn fungicide down to the, to the organism uh, where the roots are deeper uh, without a fair amount of irrigation that nobody likes. So just a reminder about John Inguijato's work at the University of Connecticut. We've had Johnny on the show a couple of times where we, he's talked about the role of verification in managing take-all patch in particular, but the rules would so, still apply for summer patch. And he's done some work looking at none, solid and hollow timing and timing of the airification, the addition or non-addition of manganese. Just a good, nice transition to, you know, the conversation that comes up every spring, you know, where, where you know, I, I think I used this slide a bunch of weeks ago when, you know, you could hear the engines roar uh, in spring. And if you look in the background here, you can see the trees are just leafing out in a lot of these pictures, right? I mean, this is early season. Right. Then the sand starts flying. We start burying everything. You know, we got John's work with the Rutgers stuff that shows, you know, the role of top dressing in, in managing certain stresses here, like or like uh, anthracnose. It doesn't eliminate it, but it certainly provides that protection. Of course, you know, Rock, you and I have chatted about this <laughs> more times than probably either of us want to admit to. But at the core, you know, I think of what you've taught really led the industry on over the last decade or so has been about the, you know, the relationship between managing organic matter and getting the water through that profile, which certainly is part and parcel to getting fungicides down there as well. Now, of course, that starts with sampling, right? This was really what I thought, you know, I used to sit around, you and I used to argue about on this on PTI and I would sit there and listen. I'm like, yeah, I mean, if you can't get a good number, I mean, we were yakking about this 10 years ago. If you can't get a good number, how do you know where and how and what you're managing, right? And then it's okay, what's the number? And then what the hell do I do? There's, there's 15 million ways to put a piece of metal in the ground, right? And, and water injection cultivation has gone by the wayside. Now you hear guys talking about surface area impacted, right? That's a common uh, mantra I hear when I visit guys. Oh, you know, I, I've impacted about 13% or 20%. I've gone out five times, right? And now we're questioning, Michael Woods, I know you've commented on this. Uh, Mike is suggesting this different approach to sampling. Uh, Carl's done some work playing around with the relationship between traffic uh, levels potentially and organic matter. And, you know, we make a reach with this for sure. We admit it, right, Carl? So, uh, and then there's all these new tools, right? Uh, uh, the, the, the dry jack, the, the turf topper, I think, which is, seems to be a, a similar thing to the dry jack where you basically you're doing water injection cultivation uh, and, and injecting sand in the hole. Uh, 
So I got a bunch of simple questions here we're going to get to, but I, here's the one I actually want to start with. <laughs> this is what I was going to ask you when we were bugging you a while ago, Rock. You know, it's spring in the north. Greens are great coming out of the wind. They're firming up nice from these early season practices guys are getting good at. We got good sands now. We test that stuff. Golfers are raving about condition. The next day, the greens are hollow-timed and buried in sand. Why mess up good greens with spring cultivation? Frank, that's a great question. And it's interesting Thanks. to watch how we've gone, how we've gone along from, you know, actually 73, um, um, Jim Baird says, hey, top dressing is the best way to control organic matter. And then we get into these really elaborate schemes, right? And nothing wrong with them. They all have their twists and, you know, all kinds of new devices and everything. But I've, I've had the same question because I think often, I, I think we need aeration in the seat, beginning of the season, but not like immediately because the grass is ready to go, right? And we're taking advantage. And especially this year, it looked like your data was similar. I took a look at some of your previous data. We had this warming trend and then the bottom dropped out, right? And we saw lots of injury, you know, we had, you know, 28 degrees after people had already started mowing. And for, for, for the Great Plains, that's pretty catastrophic. And a lot of weird discoloration and everyone was reaching for fungicides, mostly homeowners, but they're like, hey, well, how do I control this whitening, whitening of the leaf? And it looks like Ascochyta and blah, blah. And I, so, so I'm not convinced that we should be jumping on the aeration, but I do believe it's because of players, right? Because our play goes down, you know, we get a, we get a jump of play and then they're trying to take, I think the superintendent's trying to take advantage of that little gap in play before it really hits the season. But is that agronomically sound? Uh, seems to me that we could get some play on it. And I know the guys that top dress is a means of for winter management, right? They put a bunch of top dressing sand on there. Yeah. You know that that they pretty much drag that in with sand reels and 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 maybe do a little spiking or something like that to get it in. But those guys don't normally go, you know, especially out in western Nebraska. They don't normally go with a with a real aggressive coring. Matter of fact, a lot of them aren't even pulling a core anymore at all, right? Okay, wait, we're gonna get to that. So let me interrupt here and and ask you know get into the heart of it. Number one, you're right. If you don't time spring air, if you, first off, if you think you need spring airification, whether it's hollow time or solid time, and you do it at a time that you don't get active growth, you're staring at pretty bad looking holes, bumpy greens for a couple yep. of weeks. That's what yep. you're describing there. Yeah. That's the, that's number one, what aggravates the golfers further, because I also hear guys that wait and they're like, Frank, I just look what I just did. It was six days ago and they're completely covered. Cause if you hit the growth potential, right. Right, they're filled back in. But here's here's the thing I wanna wanna have a laugh about. It's I say, okay, so what if you didn't do it? They're like, oh, oh, I'm gonna get play. I gotta do it. I gotta do. Well, what if you didn't do it? Oh, oh. And so, okay, if top dressing is the way I manage organic matter, and I got sands integrated into the organic matter, I got my numbers at like two percent, like most guys who are still worried. And, and they're saying, oh, if I don't do it, it feels like it's like jumping off a cliff or something. Whoa, here I go. No spring verification, no parachute. Tell me, uh, how do we ease that for people? How do we tell them really, you know, you probably, you know, if you really got to do something, get a really thin needle and just go up and down quick. And I don't know. How do you want to answer that? 
No, and once again, another great idea. And I'm, I'm convinced that we pull for aggressive verification. If the green has problems and they need, you know, five, six, seven, who knows what the magic number is. You and I have talked about that there is really no mag magic number. But if they're down around two, two and a half, which is what we see as a routine average on greens that are managed, you know, moderately well, right? I mean, all across and Doug Lindy's work shows that and the USGA work shows that. So, so let's quit obsessing about a number and, and then not worry about it in the spring. It, you know, you can do needle tines, you can do bayonet tines, you can do these less aggressive verification, get sand into the profile without, you know, five eighths times when, when we are questioning whether the grass is gonna grow yet, wow. I, I just don't get that. I, I don't, I struggle with that. All right. So let's, let's, let's take this a little bit at a time here and go back to um, some of the questions that I listed here. First off, it's the number, right? The, you know, the, the interesting evolution of this now seems to be, well, maybe we need the number more at the surface, right? You questioned this immediately when you did your research years ago, right? Right. Where, where do we sample from? So now the question's coming again. And so for now, what's the best method in your mind that's going to give superintendents actionable data? What, what is the kind of actionable sample data they can get from sampling? Do you like the undisturbed core just in the top three centimeters? Do you think it's just maybe should start getting these OM246 numbers to see if they tell us anything, right? I'm not presuming they can tell us anything yet, but what do you think? Well, no, and you know the. I mean, Michael Woods popularized the sec sectionalized sampling. It's not new. I mean, people have been yeah. doing it. Some of the labs do that, et cetera, et cetera. But he gave it a nice hashtag and you know rolls it to the surface. And now we have an opportunity to look at that. And you know, clearly, and and the USGA, you know, Dave Otis, who's now retired from the USGA, he's like, yeah, I worry about what's in you know that little the, the inch. You know, if I'm squeezing water at that, you know. 12, 24 hours after an irrigation, that's a problem. So really, maybe we need to concentrate on that. I don't think the data is clear on that yet. And, and I did want an opportunity to talk about the USGA. They're calling it the brain trust. I'm not sure with me being on that, that counts. But, you know, it's me, Doug Soldat, Doug Lindy, um, Jim Murphy, you know, and we are all doing this. We did a lit review and we found out all the gaps in sampling. And then Doug is starting to receive samples from us to look at that first inch and whether we can consistently sample and whether we leave the verdure on and off. And, you know, the USGA is generously, well, not generously, they're sort of funding it, but, you know, we, we are getting some dollars for it to pay the bills. Yeah, you still got the guy, you still got a guy, you still got the <laughs> godfather in there somehow. Hey, I'm going to take that, right? Payola right. is a good thing. That's right. All right, so... So but that but the bottom line is, Frank, bottom line is, is that I think we're going to be, we're going to, we're going to quit thinking like farmers and come up with a sampling technique that makes sense for golf green specific or sports dirt, right? And maybe how we sample by depth and maybe, and I think you'll see that within maybe within a year, we will have that either in the green section or one, some publication where we'll say a standardized method for sampling golf greens, because we needed that. We needed that 20 years ago. Hello. Yeah, I can't wait. So let me let's ask the next question because okay, we're going to have numbers in a couple of years. If you and I are still at this, we'll come back. There'll be some numbers. We'll be able to have targets. Maybe it'll matter uh, from that perspective how to calibrate this use of sand, right? So right. what about what you revealed when you looked back and said, you know, if you put enough sand down, match to your growth, uh, you're pretty good. So what do you think about? What do you say to people now that are considering 
eliminating cultivation in many ways and just going with growth driven top dressing, which to me implies they're collecting clippings, they're monitoring their organic matter and they're adding sand accordingly versus having to make a hole and put the sand in. What are your thoughts? It was a pain in the butt when you did it, right? This harkens back to your work. No, and, and it, you know, it was, well, it was hard to sell, number one, when we showed that solid tines are just as good as hollow. Uh, and people started saying, well, what about compaction? You're not removing any material. You're not removing them. Even when people say 20%, those holes fill up with organic matter, right? So, so I, I struggle with that all the time. But at the same time, I'm just not convinced that we can't manage organic matter. And we're not talking about compaction. Sands don't readily compact. We're talking about that top inch or right. top two inches, whatever that's we come right. up with. That's why we and, build them out of these things. That's why Norm Ummel made a damn career out of this because <laughs> we engineered the damn sands. We to got keep to sand, to keep moisture off the surface and the organic matter compromises that. So manage the organic matter so that it doesn't stay at the surface, firm and fast or high and dry, whatever buzzword you want to use or hashtag you want to use. But do we need cultivation for that? I'm, I'm not convinced. And I think we need the top dressing. I know some of my very respected superintendents out there are like, hey, we don't need to top dress or they're top dressing minimally. Um, but you need some sand on the surface and you need to keep the surface firm and fast, right? That's so if I, but, but, but the idea now is if I can really keep growth to a minimum, heavy trim it use and new, you name it, the PGR, you know, we get a little nervous when they drive the end down low. But we know they keep the putting surfaces dry at a very high level. They'll try to keep them as dry as possible. So they've got everything they can do to ratchet down growth. Again, it, it drives, it's two things. Number one, it's um, they don't recover as well from traffic. And that's where I want to go next. But also, you know, if they're not growing, maybe they don't need as much sand. No, and I, but I think people are getting really good at not putting on as much sand. When we look at surveys that Paul Vermillion did, you know, 30, 25, 30 years ago. And, and, you know, there were areas putting on 60 to 80 cubic yards on an end, you know, down in Florida and stuff. And, and now we see people in the 10 to 20 range, you know, our recommendation in generic terms was around 18 to 22, right? I think we're lower than we were. And when you look at the early recommendations, they were 20 to 60 cubic yards. I mean, that's, that's a, what was it 20 or, or is it 60? Okay. So, can you give me, you know, I, I really appreciated the USGA's or this method they've come up with, with the sheet pan and the mat on top to figure out depth. I want to know, I'm, you know, it's like, I finally figured out why I don't entirely understand top dressing other than I'm, I'm an idiot. I need somebody to tell me how much depth you put on every year. I remember when the Pacific Northwest guys were doing the worm work years ago. Right. You know, God rest his soul. Paul Backman, I think, did some of that work where they were putting on a half an inch a year on the fairways. Right. Rock. Remember that? Oh, and yeah. So so what is 30? I mean, when I try to think about this, what are some targets that guys are adding in depths in, in your mind uh, over the course of a year? 30 versus 60 cubic yards. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we know our work at 20. I mean, we've got this measured as actually what happened. Um, you know, you're putting on at 20. 18 to 20, you're putting on about um, about 0.6 to 1.2 centimeters, about a half an inch a year. Okay. Yeah. At that rate. Okay. So so here's the question now, since we brought it up. What about traffic? Carl's, Carl's really been fussing around with this, looking at uh, 
organic matter levels in our, you know, putting greens on these state park golf courses. And we're getting more extensive this year doing it. Um, what do you make of that? What, what do you make of the impact? And why would traffic reduce organic matter? Well, I think we actually shear roots and, and we physically kill it, right? I mean, for lack of a better term. And I know that when we look at courses that have 60 to 80,000 rounds versus courses that have 30, they consistently have less organic matter. And then when we sample in approaches or entry extract points on a green, those can be down 1%. And then the rest of the green is at three to three and a half. Traffic does you know, so more rounds. I, I like the graph you showed of Carl's work. It's because clearly there's less organic matter when you traffic it more. You know, I wonder mm -hmm. what about triplex versus walk behinds? You know, there, there's a lot of opportunity here for data driven science, but who's going to do it? Well, that's right. And I can tell you, sometimes you just uh, necessity is the mother of invention. We're talking to our pal, I'm talking to my, our pal Dan Danelli, and he says, you know, I, 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 I got sick of the, the mower on the approach, the triplex in the approach. So I told the fiveplex guy to just drive up there, don't drive on the green, figure out how to swoop through. And he swears the, the approaches got firmer. He swears that there's less top dressing needed. So listen, let's stop here. Carl, I'm sure this is usually a lively topic. This gets usually people at least a question or two. How about you? Comments or questions for Rock? You know, the one thing when we talk about traffic, I think for the golfers, we normally think of just walking or push hard, walk on off, walk off. What we've been doing, Frank, is we've been looking at trying to estimate how many pitch marks basically a golfer will make over the course of a round. And, you know, based on how big the green is and how many golfers are going through, you can see on average between three and eight percent of your surface on a whole green impacted by a pitch mark in a given year. Um, so basically, you know, diameter of the ball, you know, how many pitch marks per round, blah, blah, blah. But that's probably a, a significant impact on traffic too. And I don't think we think about that until we see all the unfixed pitch marks, people put the flags out, they do the little demonstration. So maybe just a PSA for, for, your, for your golfers to fix their pitch marks, maybe that'll help out. <laughs> Amen okay. to that. Um, but uh, so we did have a couple questions from Vitas. One, um, he's asking about sand top dressing leading to hydrophobicity. Uh, and any other concerns there, Rocket Frank? Yeah, of course. Well, and I think it's, you know, when we try to keep them drier, you know, the drier you keep any sand, the potential for, you know, they, they, then they start repelling sand. So I think the answer is, is it possible to keep greens too dry? You know, even if you're keeping them alive and I've seen greens in that condition. And then when when they're trying to wet them up, you know, they're getting ready for a tournament or whatever. When they're trying to wet them up, they don't wet up, right? Or the you can actually see the water repealing off the surface and then they go pound them with wetting agents and we don't have time to have a conversation about wetting agents, but, but you know, <laughs> clearly they find a way to get water into the surface. So yeah, the question is, or the answer is yes, that the drier you keep sands, the more apt they are to be hydrophobic. Exactly right. And, and you're exactly right, Rock. The wetting agent hole is... Uh, one I went down a little bit with Glenn O'Beer earlier this year, and it still remains uh, a very personal thing for every superintendent. Other questions, Carl? Uh, yeah, Vitas was also asking uh, loss on ignition, combustion testing. Uh, I know, Brock, you're probably playing around. I think the temperatures of, of what they were burning, the organic matter samples, is 
is maybe changing. I don't know if you've solidified that with this USGA work or if that's something you're investigating as well. Yeah. So, so that's a great question. And, and I think it was one that was created because people found out that they are done it fired at different temperatures, you know, calcareous temperatures do respond differently, but, but the, the temperature that we've came about based on all the data that was out there, and there's a fair amount of data in agricultural soils and to a limited extent. Um, you know, we came up with a temperature and when we release the specs, we'll have a range, but within that range, you're fine. But this obsession with the temperature, I think was predicated on people looking for something to question, right? I, I don't, I think we've, well, I think we've solidified a temperature. The whole sampling depth and how you sample and leaving the verdure on or off, let's we'll, we'll try to finalize that but i think we've got a temperature that's solid and and we can trust that 99.9 percent .9 of the greens that are sampled that are sand based that'll be give you a, a reasonable estimate of, of using loi all right so so last question from me rock before we wrap up here is um these new tools what i call new tools right i, I i've been a big fan of the dry jack mostly because i was a big fan of the hydrojack uh, before that got pulled and it seemed to me man putting the sand in a hole in a water injection hole that does its thing boy that feels good because i know your data also revealed that but you know i haven't honestly i can't say i've seen data but i've walked on greens where guys have gotten on these programs and man it seems that that works now the other i will call a new tool is the air 2g i know johnny sorokin has been playing around with that talking about a little short-lived you know, we have this obsession, continued obsession for new tools on sand-based greens. And I got to tell you, pal, I haven't reconciled why we need to have all these tools when we build these things, design these things to resist the compaction beyond uh, just targeted spots like Carl talks about, walk on, walk off, uh, or, you know, where you got to put the cup a lot, where you get a lot of foot traffic that kind of thing. What are your thoughts about new tools, the need for any tools and the why bother when you got sand-based greens? Well, no, and I, I think when we see the hydrojet most effective is courses that have not consistently taught grass and, you know, superintendents have changed, a lot of turnover. And I think the hydro, I, I, you know, I, I think they work amazing, right? Because they get a lot of sand into the profile. They're less disruptive than, you know, once again, my least favorite tine is the five eights, right? You know, and I mean, why Everybody go that big? It. Go big or go home? No, I don't think you need that. But anyway, um, so <laughs> I've seen greens really torn up and heaved when they use. So, but if you've got a green that's gotten been compromised by layering and, and, you know, excessive nitrogen, so you get those multiple grow-in layers, even though the oh. greens were built 30 years ago, right? You get that, you know, cake, uh, Steve Keeley, layers are for cakes, not for greens, right? And, and there's some amazing pictures on, on Twitter of people showing, you know, yeah. 20, 21, 20, 40, whatever year greens. Yeah. So, so I'm not sure. I, I, I think they really work great in those arenas. And then as a management tool with a little less aggressive approach. And, you know, the, the, the guys that run that company do a really good job. I don't know anything about the Air 2G. I know a little yeah. bit about it. Yeah. I know like Johnny's work in, in yeah. um, sports turf, you know, is clearly showing some benefits, but you know, sure are they long-term or not? And he himself yeah. has said that. So just yeah. like you said, but I, I'm not sure we, I'm not sure for the general day-to-day -day operations of a green that's been managed, what we would say, quote unquote, correctly, that's not layered and doesn't have an excessive organic matter, whether we just can't do, my favorite is needle times in the quadratine set, right? And just poke holes and throw sand. And, and no one noticed, no one even knew you were there. 
No, the, you know that you could if you put just a minimal sand on, you can water it in, and nobody knows you're there, right? Exactly right. And no, Hi, no, no disruption. Yeah, you're the no man. So great to see you. We're at the witching hour, Carl, for the end of our season, man. Eleven weeks. Woof. Yeah. It, it's, 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 it's not only the fastest 30 minutes, it's the fastest 11 weeks. We are bending the space-time continuum, Carl. Yep, thanks, thanks everybody for joining us. We'll have one more episode tomorrow with uh, Chase Straw. We'll talk about some remote sensing on sports turf. Uh, but Rock, again, thanks for the time today. Enjoy Happy to class. finally get it done. All right, Rock. Yep. See, we'll see everybody tomorrow. Thanks, everybody. Thanks very much. Take care. Appreciate it. This has been a production of Cornell University. On the web at cornell.edu.